they will bring one to you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Lord, I, um, I want to pray this morning for all of those who have been um, affected by the shooting in Texas this week. God, I pray for the families. I pray for the, the staff at the school. I pray for law enforcement, medical um, response, Lord, the community, just all of the many, many bits and pieces of this event and all the people who have been, uh, their world rocked. Father God, I, I petition and ask of you, somehow, in some way, by your marvelous workings, that, Lord, even this event could result in many coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, resulting in your glory. Father, the pain that is in the lives of these folks is excruciating. And I pray, Father God, that we would, with great sympathy, be in prayer for them. Ask for your blessing on those families, Father God, that they would turn to you and find the only comfort that truly comforts in your arms. For Lord, there is but one answer for this world. Everybody's running around searching for answers and fighting with each other. There remains one and only one way to truly bring peace. And Father, that is to be at peace with you through the, your, your precious Son. So I ask of you, Father God, have mercy on our country. Have mercy on us as a people. And Father, may we be a people who are peacemakers, true peacemakers that go around with a desire of spreading the gospel of peace. Father, I pray that it would motivate us and give us passion to be evangelists. The world needs the cure, and we have it. They don't even know they need the cure. They don't even know that it is the cure. And so I, I petition you, Father, give us a burning desire to take the good news of the gospel to this world that is tearing itself apart. I pray and ask that, Lord, that you'd reap a harvest in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> There's numerous proofs of the Scripture's authenticity, its validity, the fact that it is true, the fact that it is historic. Lots of different proofs that lots of different good theologians and apologists, people who are seeking to make an argumentation for the truth of Scripture and the historicity of Scripture. One of those is 
uh, kind of interesting to me, and I'm using this to draw us into this text this morning. One of those is the scripture never hides the flawed character of the people within the book. Even the authors themselves do not seek to hide the flaws in the character of the people in the book. If you read the storyline of King David, you read of an incredible human being that God has has affected so powerfully and so powerfully used for his glory. But you also see the flaw in his character or flaws in his character. You see the flaws in Joseph. You see the flaws in all of the different Bible characters, showing that this is actual reality. Sometimes you watch a movie and the good guy has no flaws. And you go, this is a movie, this is not reality. As I read the scripture, I go, this says so clearly history. This is reality. It shows us, yes, powerful people who have been used powerfully by God, but ultimately, here's their flaws. And so, I want to show you exhibit A of flawed people this morning in chapter 27 of Genesis. This is a very interesting story, and I say story in the sense of true history, not in the sense of I'm telling you a story that was made up. Sometimes we use the word story and it lends itself to that, and folks, may that might mess with you. I mean it as telling you a story of something that truly happened, history. It's one you're familiar with, I would imagine. If you've been in the church for any time at all, you're familiar with this storyline. It has many different bits and pieces to it, and we may end on a point that you didn't see coming. I don't know. We'll find out. But look at the last two verses of chapter 26. I had asked Lloyd to read those because really that kind of kicks off where we're going to be in chapter 27. I'm not covering the whole chapter 27 this morning. Look at the last two verses, 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, what an interesting context for all this text to slide into, because the very first thing we're going to see is Isaac's going to call his son and say, come to me, make me food, and I'm going to bless you. And the chapter, the context that it sits in is this very one who he says, I want to give the blessing to you, says he married outside of their people, married two Hittites, and makes their life bitter. What we've seen of Esau thus far is this, a man, this is a man who's driven by his passions. This is a man who is driven by what he can get and what he wants. And so to see him not only to marry outside of their people and go and intermarry with the Hittites, but then to also go against what we see in God's word, one man, one woman, and take multiple wives. This man is satisfying his lusts with no concern as to what God may think which falls right in line with what we see about Esau. And he makes their life bitter. Now, if you notice in your Bible, I have it in mind, there's a bunch of white space between that and chapter 27. I'm very curious in reference to how did he make their life bitter? What did he do? What did he say? How did he act? Was it his ungodliness that went against the the righteous soul of his parents? I, I don't know. All we're told is they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. Now, look at verse 20 or chapter 27 verse 1. 
And this is Isaac's secret game plan. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac is now old and blind. Isaac called Esau to him alone. He wishes to put this plan together before he dies, and he sends Esau on a hunting trip. So you think about this. We're just told Esau is making life bitter. We're told earlier in reference to these twins when they're born that that um, the older will serve the younger. So even from the very beginning, we're told that the older will serve the younger. Um, There's a couple other passages we'll be looking at, but Romans chapter 9 says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We see a selection of Jacob by God in the text. But there's also an ingredient here that we've seen thus far up to this point, and that is a kind of a favoritism of... Isaac for Esau, and of Rebekah for Jacob. Remember, Esau is kind of the man's man, the hunter, the guy that goes out, and and he's very strong, and and Isaac is impressed with this son. Jacob is more, uh, likes to dwell in tents, it says. He's he's more softer. Um, I think the Greek word is something like mama's boy. And as as you go through here, you see that there's this favoritism. Rebekah favors Jacob. Isaac favors Esau. Now, Isaac is blind, Isaac is old, and Isaac says, I don't know when I'm going to die. Fun fact for you, he lives some 40 years longer after this. So when he says, I don't know if I'm going to die or not, he doesn't know if he's going to die or not, but he didn't. He lasted a lot longer after this whole event. So he calls his son to him. Now, I believe as I read this text secretively, because the, the, the whole... That which is not being said, if you will, as Rebecca is listening in, gives the impression that this is something where Isaac only wants Esau to come in, he tells him what to do, and he says, I will bless you. Remember, Jacob has already purchased the birthright from Esau. Remember that whole lentil stew thing? Can you imagine giving your birthright for lentil stew? <laughs> ah, I hate lentils, so I just can't imagine that. But nonetheless, he sold him his birthright. So now we have God at the very beginning where these two are born, where the older will serve the younger, that prophecy given, then the birthright sold from one brother to another. This is moving in a particular direction from God. And Isaac says, I'm going to go in the opposite direction of that, and I want to bless this son, not that son. So he calls Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. No doubt, this is not the first time that he's gone out and killed an animal and brought back food for Pop. This This is something that has happened in the past. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die." Again, the senses, some of them are deadened. He can't see very well, but apparently his taste is still functioning fine. 
And he wants this delicious food that his son brings him, driven by his passions, driven by his senses. I want to have this delicious food such as I love, and then I'll pour a blessing out on you. Would you notice that nowhere in the text that we've read thus far does Esau say, but that's not mine, that's Jacob's. Esau doesn't say, no, this isn't true, you can't do that. That's not my role, that's not my place. No, nothing is said. Look down at the text. Uh, It says, uh, it doesn't even say anything. It just simply says, we go to the next thing where Rebecca's listening. In other words, Esau bolts. He's in, of course. This is great. I'm still angry at Jacob for tricking me and stealing my birthright, even though he sold it to him. You will see some of the hot indignation of Esau towards Jacob later in this chapter. So Esau sees the opportunity. Isaac has granted him the opportunity, and Esau clicks his heels and says, yes. So Esau leaves. Now, I don't know if you've ever been camping, but it's hard to keep a secret in a tent. So look down and look at verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. Uh, just backing up for just a second, this, it was very common to have a feast before there was some large event, and it was very common before a departure to give a blessing to his children, for, for a patriarch to give a blessing to his children. So Isaac here says, I don't know if I'm going to die or not. I want you to have the blessing. So I want you to prepare a feast, and then I will pour this blessing out on you. Rebecca hears this. Now, so we have Isaac's secret game plan, and now we're going to look at Rebecca's secret game plan. All right? This is so interesting. It's like you could act this out so easy if you wanted to do some sort of a play with it. I'm not going to. But there's a secret game plan on top of a secret game plan, okay? She overheard what he said. Perhaps she saw this coming. Now, again, beloved, I'm, I'm um, guessing here. The text doesn't say I don't know. There's part of me that's curious as to how much Rebecca was prepared for him to try to do this. Did she see or hear anything that he said up to this point that led her to think, I wonder if, she's gonna, if he'll try to sneak this blessing to Esau. Regardless, no secrets in a tent, she overheard him, and Isaac's voice, perhaps, was loud. Why? Well, if his eyes are going bad, his hearing possibly is as well, and he probably talked a little bit louder than the normal guy, and she probably overheard what he was saying. So she conspires a plan to counter Isaac's plan. Now, this is where we have to do some very careful Bible thinking, because I want to be very careful not to attach a good motive or a bad motive to this woman. I read commentators that sought both. One commentator sought very hard to show that this was actually a pure driven motive inside Rebecca of what she's doing here. 
Other commentators, the majority of the commentators, pointed and said, no, actually, this is an impure motive. She's being wicked in her deception here. Let me ask you this. How often are your motives always pure or never pure? Almost always our motives are mixed. We're we're weird like that. That's how it works. We usually have a, a good motive, but there's also some bad motives in there, and then perhaps some bad methods mixed in with the good motives and bad motives, which makes everything very complicated, which is where I hang my hat in reference to Rebecca in this text. Because remember, Rebecca was the one who was told the older will serve the younger. She's looking forward to Jacob receiving this blessing. She's seeing Jacob be the one who will get this blessing. And she hears Isaac's going to go against what God has said he will do through Jacob. So, what should I do? I'll help God out. How? By lying and deceiving and tricking. Good motives or bad motives? You be the judge, because the text doesn't say. Very interesting point to me, guys. Nowhere in the text does God, God himself, or the Moses, uh, the Lord using Moses in the text, to speak ill of Jacob or Rebekah in any of this. So if the scripture doesn't, Dan shouldn't. At the same time, is lying and deception bad? Is where you say yes. So if lying and deception is bad, and they're going to lie and deceive here, that's bad. See, what I love about the Scripture, uh, there's so many different things about the Scripture. One thing in particular is it is so, it just, it's so clear and, and shows who we are. It doesn't paint a beautiful picture. It doesn't paint a horrible picture. It shows, no, life's more gray than that. And so perhaps this woman with a motive of that's not right says, I'm going to make sure that it doesn't go that way. So I will assist God in a very, very interesting way. Look down at your Bibles. Now therefore, verse 8, My son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Now notice this, verse 11. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my mother, Esau's a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Now, very important, notice this. Jacob does not say, Mom, this is wrong because we're lying to Dad. No, what does he say? I might get caught. I might get in trouble. You kidding haven't you seen my Esau's like an ape? And look at me, there's like nothing there. Mom, are, this isn't going to work. We don't even have the same voice. The point being, conscience does not rush to the occasion here. Rather, I don't want to get cursed if he finds us out. This is a trick. This is wrong. He doesn't say that. He just simply says, I don't want to get in trouble. Now, verse 13, his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Now, I'm sure many of you have eaten wild game and perhaps some of you have eaten goat. There's a difference. (laughs) 
Not much of a difference at times, but there is nonetheless a difference, which tells me that perhaps this man's senses are dulling also the fact that she knew exactly how to prepare the food in the way that he liked it, seasonings and sauces and whatnot, because she doesn't even flinch the fact that these are goats and that's wild game. But also, she doesn't even flinch at the thought that he might bring a curse. She doesn't even flinch that she may receive a curse. Do you see how um, strongly bent she is towards this? To the point of, then, your curse be on me. This is what we're doing. You just obey mom's voice. This will be done. Again, the scripture does not tell us exactly the motive in the heart of this woman. I will just say, if it's pure favoritism for Jacob, that seems to be a pretty weak motive to potentially get a curse in the way that she just said here. Just drawing some thoughts. Where did I leave off? All right. Verse 14. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son Jacob. Uh, My best guess is that these boys are both probably, to some extent, the same kind of build, and so they can wear each other's clothes. My brothers and I exchange clothes all the time, usually didn't ask. And as as he gives, she gives him the best of clothes, so the clothes smell like him. And then somehow she takes the, the hairs from the goat and actually attaches it to his skin. Whether some sort of glue, I don't know. The text doesn't say. All it says is she attached goat hair onto him, the smooth part of his neck, and on his hands. So that way when he goes up and delivers to dad, dad will be tricked. Now you smell like him and you will feel like him as well. Now, (laughs) as I've been studying this text all week, all I can think of is what if another servant walked in and saw all of this? To think of this guy, this guy with, with goat, goat hair all over his arms and all over his neck, wearing his brother's clothes, bringing in this food. What a ridiculous sight this would be for him to walk in and do this. But mom said so, so we're going to do it. Verse 18. So he went into his father and said, my father. So now we're seeing Jacob's deception. We've seen the secret plan of Isaac. We're seeing the secret game plan of Rebekah and now the deception from Isaac himself. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up, And eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? So apparently Isaac's still somewhat sharp. He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Esau or near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice of Jacob's voice, but the hands of the ha- are the hands of Esau. Now, just notice that there is 
tremendous deception going on here to the point, and this is what, it just kind of twists the knife a little bit, to the point that Jacob says, Almighty God gave me success in the hunt. I am Esau. I think of all the lies he just told his dad in that brief little discourse between the two. I am Esau. I've done what you've asked. The Lord granted me success. Again, he says, I am Esau. And then a tender kiss wrapped up in a dirty lie. If you look further down, he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. I'm sorry, I skipped a portion there. Verse 22. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice of Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. Let me ask you a question, just a one-word answer if you would. You think Rebecca watched all this? Be hard not to. You work so hard on the costume <laughs> to see how this is going to turn out. Because the cursing is on her if Isaac is keen to what is going on here. But regardless, this all starts with Isaac saying, I've got a game plan. Esau, I'm going to bless you. Go get the delicious food and bring it to me. Rebecca overhears it and Rebecca goes, not, not so fast. I'm going to actually pull one over on you with my secret game plan. And I'm going to send Jacob in and Jacob will receive this blessing from you, not Esau. And now Jacob has come, he's followed through, he's lied to his father, to his face, and his father has fallen for it. When his blindness and his incapability of recognizing it, even after all the questions, which shows that he's struggling with whether or not this is really Esau. Are you really? Are you really? Are you really? Man, it sure seems like it, but I just don't know because the voices are different. But nonetheless, he eventually falls for it. He eats and then he drinks. No doubt that will dull the senses again. And now comes the moment where Rebecca is holding her breath in the other room. And he says, see, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, obviously, this is the Lord also attached to what's being said by Isaac here. Isaac doesn't have the power to make all that happen. God does. And this is the truth. This is what's going to happen. There is an attachment of the Lord. Again, this goes back to the prophecy giving at the very beginning that where he says the older will serve the younger, the very thing that's being said by the Father in the blessing right here in this text. And Jacob receives it with joy. It worked. Mom's plan worked. 
So if mom's plan worked, then I guess that it wasn't that bad of a plan and we can continue on. Due to Jacob's costume and Isaac's dull senses, it worked. After Isaac's food is consumed, he pours out this blessing, the dew of heaven, the concept of God's blessings raining down on him, the fatness of the earth, all the things of this earth being given to him, plenty of grain and wine. He's never hungry. He's never thirsty. He will have people consistently serving him. Nations will bow down to him, and he will be lord over his brothers And curses will be on anybody who does him harm and blessings on all those that bless him. And Rebecca watched in the distance, feeling utterly satisfied it worked. Isaac's sneaky plan, Esau's lustful pursuit, Rebecca's manipulative deceit, Jacob's slimy charade and lying tongue. What a family. Now, here's the interesting part. This is where we'll do a little bit of theology this morning. When you look at that, you scratch your head thinking, God, why would you work with these people? Why would these be those people? Now, and again, as soon as we ask that question, I just want to invite you to purchase a mirror this week that we're all reminded, God, why would you work with this guy? Why Why would you do that? Why would you be so kind and generous and loving and use me for your glory? So really, guys, I have two points that I want to drive home from this story. And I realize the other shoe's going to drop next week when Esau shows up with the wild game and things don't go so well. But I want to just draw your attention to two things, okay? Number one, God is not in need of our anxiety-driven, dishonest, manipulative tactics to accomplish his divine purpose. Let me say it again. God is not in need of our anxiety-driven, dishonest, manipulative tactics to accomplish His divine purpose. The ends do not justify the means in the sense that we'll do whatever we want, we can do whatever we want, as long as the result is what we think it should be. God cares about the means. God cares about what you do. God cares about how you do it. The Lord is at work in us in our doing, not just in the results of that which we do. So even if Rebecca is, her motive is pure, do you see that there's an utter lack of trust in God to accomplish his will? To the point that deception and lying is needed in order to help God out to accomplish his will. Now, where's that hit home? Here's where I think it hits home. As a pastor, this very much hits home for me in the sense where... Far too often you can see people manipulate churches or manipulate believers into doing something or coax unbelievers to do something where in your anxiety-driven, perhaps good motive, take the world's methods to have godly results. When the church does When the church acts like the world and expects to get biblical godly results, they're going to be disappointed every single time. Beloved, we cannot manipulate circumstances in order to help God out to accomplish his task. We must be faithful to do God's way for God's purposes. In our evangelism, in our life as a church body, In our life as workers, wherever you may work, 
There's all kinds of ways that you can cut corners, lie, and cheat, so that way things are a little bit smoother so we can help God out. Let me just warn you. That doesn't help him out. It doesn't help you out. God is not in need of our manipulative tactics to accomplish what we think is a good end. What you do in the means is vital, absolutely vital. Number two. It's attached, okay? Number two. God is fully capable to use the evil actions of man to accomplish his divine purpose. One more time. God is fully capable to use the evil actions of man to accomplish his divine purpose. Did you notice who got blessed in the end? Jacob. You know who God said would be served? The older will serve the younger. So here's what I think is so fantastic. We have the the sneaky plan, the secret plan of Isaac, the secret plan of Rebekah, the deception of Jacob, and then the sneakier plan of God (laughs) to accomplish his good purpose. Even the evil intent of man ultimately serving the good purpose of God. Now, I'm not calling evil good or good evil. What I'm saying is that even the evil intent of man can be and is used by God for his good purpose. And if you have a struggle with that, you have a huge problem because we worship and are saved by somebody who was crucified who shouldn't have been. And the evil intent of man pierced Jesus Christ to the cross, and I praise God for that. It doesn't mean that they aren't judged. It doesn't mean that that wasn't evil. But what it does mean is that the evil intent of man is not outside of God's grasp to accomplish his purpose. How could we read Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good if there's all kinds of stuff outside of his control and outside of his grasp? Beloved, if you contemplate just for an hour, just sit down with a piece of paper and just write out, all the variables that could potentially throw off God's game plan in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it is insane that all of them lined up perfectly at that moment where he cries, it is finished. And so I see potentially poor motives, evil intentions, deceitful methods, all running about in this family, ultimately resulting in God's divine purpose, his good will, resulting in the blessing on Jacob, whose name will be changed to Israel, and we will see all of this unfold, ultimately resulting in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ through the line of this family. Let me give you a few passages of Scripture just to jot down. I've shared them with you before. But there's many, but I'm just giving you a few. Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He does all that He pleases. And Romans 8.28, I've already quoted it, you don't have to turn there, that God works all things together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Don quoted that at the beginning of this service. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who, him who, 
So Almighty God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Remember when Joseph is brought before his brothers and he stares his brothers in the face and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Your intent was evil and disrespectful and dishonoring of the Lord. You were going against him in sin when you did what you did to me. And at the exact same time, God was accomplishing his good purpose in that which you were doing. God is magnificent. His brain is so vast. His understanding, there is nothing he doesn't understand, nothing that he struggles with knowing. And he's in sovereign control over all things. Okay, so if that's the being, that's the one we're dealing with, that's the one we're talking to, the one that that we worship and follow. If he has all those capabilities, then of course he's in control. Then of course he works all things together for good. See, beloved, we, the, the, if you were to say, Dan, what is the biggest issue in the church of Jesus Christ right now? If we took that poll this morning, I'm sure there'd be a, a many, many different things we would all throw out there. I'm convinced one of, if not the greatest need of the church, is we need a better understanding of God. He's weak. He's mild. He's begging for us to lift a finger to help him. All these kinds of caricatures of the sovereign king. We've made him a little bit above man. No, he is almighty, holy, holy, Holy. One of the greatest needs we need is to have a fresh vision of the living God. Why? Well, here's where it comes down to the concrete. When we see God rightly for who he is, we see ourselves rightly for who we are. And beloved, you know what gets swallowed up? Our pride is swallowed up immediately. You know what else is swallowed up? Our fear is swallowed up. Our anxiety is swallowed up. This is what is so interesting is we try to pinpoint these things thinking that we're going to answer them. No, what we need is we need to see God. We need to see the Lord for who he is. And the more we understand our God and see him for who he is, we find a peace of soul. We find a rest in our soul as who our God is. And then when you see who he is and you see what he's promised, beloved, that takes a firm grip on all of the stuff that attacks us all the time. So that you're capable of looking at our country tearing itself apart in so many ways and then share the message my brother shared in the call to worship this morning. Why? Because it's true. Even when it's, I struggle in my own, my own mind and heart, that is that really true? God, God, are you really doing good with this? How could you do good with this? How could you do good with that? That's horrible. Well, I just challenge you. Study the scripture. You're going to see horrible things done that perfectly fall in line and are used for God's glory and the good of his people. So if that's the truth... Beloved, I pray you would arm yourself with that truth. I have no idea what kind of news you might hear this week, what kind of stuff may get thrown at you, but I will say this. What you know and believe about God is what will keep you held in the midst of that storm.
And so as I see the deception and all this stuff going on with this funny family, where I find my uh, rest in my heart and soul is that there's a sovereign God who is working all things together for good. There's a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything is working according to his perfect will. Even at moments where I struggle looking at the certain particular circumstances, that truth hovers over all of it. And that is truly an anchor for our souls. Father,